We're going to start a new a series today that's going to take us into Easter, and it's on, uh, you guessed it, the city of Corinth, and I call this series Crazy Corinth. Um, and you, you, if you haven't read the letters to the Corinthians in the New Testament, you really, if you're looking for a kind of a, a, an example, a snapshot of what the, the earliest church looked like, and you know we have we have this uh, treasure in the New Testament because we do have some letters preserved for us there to these different churches, and uh, we've got two letters in the New Testament to this church in the city of Corinth, and so we get to look at well, how these people live, what were they struggling with, how did they live out their Christianity, and so on after Jesus was gone. I mean, these people in the city of Corinth never met Jesus, but they're believing in this, in this view of who He is, and so on, and the Messiah, and so how did they live? How did they do it? What did they struggle with? How did they live? And all these things. And so in Corinth, we've actually got two letters. They're, they're nice and long, so pl plenty of information. I mean, 1 Corinthians, I think, is like, how many chapters? 16, I think it is. 2 Corinthians, how many chapters? Anybody know? 13, you sure? It's 13 or 14? 13? Uh, their phone says 13? Okay. Um, so, I mean, uh, let's see, 16 and 29 chapters, at least by our you know, way of dividing it. It's a lot. That's a lot. And we know a lot about this city. And that's the good thing is we've got a lot of information to work with. So it's really, really helpful. But I, one thing you need to understand about Corinth and today, really, really simple. Corinth was a crazy place. Crazy. That's why I call it Crazy Corinth. And it's a crazy church too. If you read the letters, the things that the author who we know 100%, we're 100% sure that it's Paul who wrote these letters, and I'll show you why in a few minutes, but this was a church that was all over the place. When you read uh, the things that he, that he writes and the subjects that he's addressing, even if you don't know anything about the city of Corinth at all, your mind is looking and you're saying, what's up with these people? Like, why is there so much talk about you know, food offered to idols. And why is there so much talk about, um, you know, this whole thing with sexual immorality? Like, why is he spending so much time on this? And why does he spend time on subjects like seems so weird to us, you know, where there's crazy passages in there with women covering their heads and all this. And we look at it and we go, what was going on in this church, you know? I mean, this is a church where people were doing the, the Lord's Supper communion and they were so bad at it that God was judging them for the way that they behaved. And yet at the same time, there seems to have been uh, a plethora of gifts in this church and the people were used somehow through the Holy Spirit by God and you look at it and you say it's all over the place. And then at one point, Paul is kind of defending himself as he's being attacked by them. So it's really, really strange. This is why it helps us to learn a little bit about the backdrop 
And that's what you're going to learn today about Corinth, the backdrop of this crazy, crazy place. Um, and I want to help you understand a little bit about what we know about, I call it the city of Aphrodite. You probably never heard it term that way before, but that's a term that I give to it. There are three, three temples there, at least three, that were dedicated to the goddess, uh, the Greek goddess Aphrodite, or she went by the, the Romans called her Venus, which is where we get the title Venus from, or the planet Venus. So in any case, we know quite a bit about this place. We have a lot of information, and this really helps us. Just a tip for you. You know, if you're new to the, to the Bible and you're reading the New Testament and you're like, excuse me, what is a Corinth, you know? What's an Ephesus? What's a Thessalonica? What, what are all these, you know, these are all these letters that Paul writes to these places. And so you're not, you're not foolish for asking those questions. You have to sometimes say, I, I got to, who are these people? Who are they? What are their problems? What's the occasion for this, these writings and these letters that we still have 2,000 years later? And when we learn that, sometimes we say, oh, that's why, that's why he said that, because that city was crazy. That's why, <laughs> that's why he did that, because they had this issue. Oh, I see. Uh, that would make some sense now, wouldn't it? You know. So we try to do that. When you read these letters, that's kind of what you have to do. And fortunately, with Corinth, we've got a lot of information. And here, we've got three things that converge for us. So we've got info about Corinth in the book of Acts, which is also in the New Testament, which shows us some of the, the dealings of the early uh, leaders in the church and what they did. It's like a narrative, you know, Paul did this, Peter did this, and so on, and you, you, you follow them on their different journeys as they're trying to spread the message of Jesus. So we have this in the book of Acts, and we have a nice chunk in Acts chapter 18 about, guess where, the city of Corinth. Oh, that's nice. But also with Corinth, we're fortunate enough to know quite a bit about it from extra-biblical history. So from history that is not mentioned in the Bible, we still know about the city. So we know uh, a lot about it. We know about the politics. We know about the the religious beliefs. We know about the uh, the, the leadership. We, we can go and even visit the city uh, today. And Corinth was, uh, was a Greek city that became very, very powerful in, in the whole Greek setup. And then it was destroyed by the Romans and then rebuilt by the Romans. And then it became the capital of the Roman province, Achaia. And uh, 200,000 people in there when the Apostle Paul would have been there. We know quite a bit about it. It was destroyed by an earthquake in the late 1800s. And then they rebuilt it. You can still go to a Corinth today, which is a little bit ways away from ancient Corinth, but you could, they've excavated ancient Corinth, and you can go and you can look at it. They even have a museum uh, there, so you can go and see it, and that's what we'll look at on, uh, on Wednesday nights. So we know quite a bit about this place. From extra-biblical history, we do, but we also do from archaeology. We've even found things in the rocks about Corinth that really help us. And so it all fits together. It all dovetails together really, really nicely for us, which is good. So Acts chapter 18, for example, 
And this is uh, the Apostle Paul. He's on his, one of his journeys. They call this the second sort of a teaching tour that Paul made. And he's, he's on his way to Corinth from Athens, which is like 50 miles away. So Acts chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And there he met a Jew named Aquila. Remember that name a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla. So you got this couple there, Aquila and Priscilla. Why were they there? The author tells us, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and he worked with them. And every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Okay, full stop. So Paul heads to this city of Corinth. He meets this couple. They are a, 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 a Jewish uh, uh, couple, Aquila and Priscilla, and uh, they have been ordered out of the city of Rome by Emperor Claudius. This is a really cool detail because we know this from the extra-biblical history that Claudius did this. So here we have Luke reporting it for us in Luke chapter 18 and verse 2, and we know when Claudius did it as well. And so Paul sees this couple, and we notice from Paul's life that he has a trade. He has a skill. He's a tent maker. This is why Paul sometimes refers to tents in the way that he writes. He talks about the tent of this body. Soon I will put it aside, he says because it's getting old, his tent, right? So he's a tent maker. They're tent makers. And so he stays with them, and he works with them to sustain himself, presumably. And they've got their little tent-making business, if you will. But Paul also, on the side, goes and does his ministry. Really cool example. So he's in every Sabbath, he's going into the Jewish synagogue there, and he's trying to reason with Jewish people, but also with Greeks. They were kind of God-fearing people who worshiped the God of Israel, but they were Greek. You with me so far? So then you get, you get Tylus, uh, Timothy and Silas, and they come from Macedonia, which is also, you just think of it in Greece. And Paul spends more time preaching and talking about Jesus being the Messiah that the Jews are looking for and so on. But there's a clash. There's opposition with this group and Paul, and they, they become abusive toward him. And so he says, forget it. I'm going to move on from you. It says he shook out his clothes in protest, which is an expression saying, enough, I'm, I'm done talking to you. And he says to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles and non-Jewish people. Okay. So Paul leaves the synagogue, we're told, and he goes next door to a house, a guy named uh, Titius Justus, who's, that's a Greek name, uh, uh, or Greek or Roman, and he's a God-fearing person. All right, good. He goes over to that house. And then verse 8, Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who had heard Paul believed and were baptized. All right, so he's got some success with a synagogue leader there by the name of Crispus, and the whole household comes to faith. Wonderful. But he's still got this persecution that he's dealing with on the side from this other group. Verse 9, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. 
Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one's going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. Many people in this city. And so Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half. Whew, 18 months he spends with these people, teaching them the word of God. Hmm. Verse 12, it still goes on. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This is another really cool clue because we actually have the inscription that says that Gallio is the proconsul of Achaia and we know when, when, it, when it happened. So we put Paul in here in Acts chapter 18 in the city of Athens and we know this is 50, 51 AD. Exactly. We know this, these two clues pinpoint the exact time. So they've got Paul. They're going to they're gonna try and judge him in front of this Gentile proconsul. And they say, this man is persuading the people to worship God in ways that are contrary to the law. And just as Paul was about to speak, presumably to defend himself, Gallio says, look, if you're making some kind of complaint about a misdemeanor or a serious crime, fine, I'll listen to you. But what you're talking is basically gibberish to me. You know, it's questions and words and names and your own law. Take care of it yourselves. This is none of my business. Settle it amongst yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he kind of washes his hands of it, and he says, leave my courtroom, as it were. And, uh, but they get upset, and they actually turn on a synagogue leader. Maybe there was a transfer in the leadership of the synagogue. We're not sure, but there's a guy named Sosthenes, and the crowd turns on this synagogue leader, and they beat him up in front of Gallio, the proconsul. But Gallio says, I don't care. You're not persuading my hand. Do what you do your own way. This is your business. This is not mine. Verse 18, Paul stays in Corinth for some time. So maybe he's there for even more than 18 months. And then he left and he sails for Syria accompanied by the couple who he had met or oh, maybe two years before Priscilla and Aquila. Full stop. We're done with Corinth in Acts chapter 18. Mm-hmm. So we see a little bit of the backdrop there. Corinth has a, 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 quite a location. Uh, if you look at the screen, it's probably, yeah, it's like in the center of the screen there. Um, if you see Athens just uh, on the right of it there, it's like 50 miles away. And then you see Corinth, it's kind of in the center. If I zoom in a little bit, you're going to see it's located on what they call an isthmus. It's a, it separates two big seas there. So you can, you can see from its location, this was a very important city in terms of transport and trade. You would have military people going through there. You'd have sailors going through there. This was quite a, a, a location in terms of commerce, trade, the military, all of these things. And we know just by looking at the ruins of it, this is a shot of, of Corinth in the foreground, uh, like the city. And then in the background, there's a very high hill up there, very prominent hill. I think the, the temple remains there. Those columns are a temple to Apollos. Uh, but the prominent god there was Aphrodite. 
and uh, she had three temples there. Now, that little mountain that you see isn't so little. Uh, this is a massive, intimidating mount, and they called this in those times an Acropolis. And up there, you would have the leadership would live up there. You'd have administration up there. You'd have command posts. Uh, it was kind of run from up there. The military would be up there. And up there, in that time, was a temple, a prominent temple, dedicated to Aphrodite or Venus. And there is a story. It's a it's a story that is controversial because some say it's not true, some say it is true, but there is a story from the historian Strabo who says that there were a thousand temple prostitutes up there at that temple, and you know there was a big source of revenue there. As a result, you've got these sailors, you've got these military people coming in, and you know that that was it. So we don't know if it's true, we don't know if it's false. There's controversy about this, but temple prostitution was a common thing uh, uh, back in those cities. It, this is the way that things were. You know, you talk about the sex trade today; it was kind of a form of that with the spirituality in there. Now. I call it the city of Aphrodite with, you know, these three temples dedicated to her. You had a temple of Apollos there. You also had a, um, an Asclepion there. And an Asclepion was a healing, a healing center. You see this in many of the uh, cities mentioned in the New Testament. It's quite creepy, an Asclepion. This was a, a healing center um, uh, run by uh, the god Asclepius, who was a snake god. And the, an Asclepion, you would, you would go in there and you, know, you would be sick, you would have some sort of ailment and you would go in there and there was a series of kind of tunnels that you would go in and you would, uh, the priests would uh, give you some kind of a narcotic it's thought of and you would, you would pass out, you would sleep and you'd have dreams and then you would wake up and then you would tell the priest your problem and the priest would say, okay, drink this water or do this kind of food or do this kind of remedy and Asclepius uh, will heal you. And now in Corinth, um, and again, this is separate from Aphrodite, okay? In Corinth, they actually made clay models of body parts and gave them as almost like an offering to this god uh, Asclepius to uh, uh, you know heal me of my whatsoever. And we actually have those things in the museum over in Corinth. So pretty creepy, folks. But that's the way that it was over there. You got an Apollo's temple. You got three to Aphrodite. You got this Asclepion. I mean, you got all kinds of stuff there. There is a theater that seats, I think, 10,000 that we can still see the, the ruins of it there in the city of Corinth, quite the place. Now, Aphrodite, or Venus as the Romans called her, was the goddess of beauty, uh, fertility, uh, sexuality, ecstasy, and this is what the city of Corinth was known for. The reputation of Corinth, like, they even had a term back then in the ancient world. And when you called somebody a Corinthian, you, it was a derogatory term. It meant that they were, they were wild in their living, they were promiscuous, and they were a drunkard. 
So in plays, if someone was called a Corinthian, it's like, oh, the Corinthians, you know, they're loose living, you know, drunkards, and, and, you know, they're in a flood of dissipation and sin, these people. This is the way that they were viewed. And you have this prominence of this goddess. She's in the currency there. She's in the whole worship system there. And, you know, people have tried to say, well, you know, modernize the imagery a little bit. And it's quite obvious that this was, you know, it makes you blush a little bit, but this is a place that was known for uh, sexual immorality. Even their parties and things like that were absolutely wild, like the things that they would do there. And in Greek culture, like as a whole, the, the, the values were centered around the worship of the physical body. This is a very dominant theme uh, in the Greek culture. I mean, this is why you see all of these statues and all this stuff with the, even the men and the exercise and the gyms that they had there. The Greeks invented those things, you know, back to the Olympics and all that because of the worship of the physical body and beauty. Uh, this, is, this was valuable, okay? And this is where people, uh, this is what people wanted to be and they worshiped this. Uh, it's It's... It, you know, it's, it's one thing to say that God created your body and it's created in the image of God and you should take care of it. It's another to turn it into an idol. And in their situation, especially with this goddess, you know, dominant uh, theme in the values of that city, you really have quite a wild situation there. Even though the Romans tried to clean it up a little bit, you know, it's very dominated by this. And when you have all these sailors coming in, and when you have all these military men coming in, you've got some crazy stuff going on there. Well, it raises a few questions, doesn't it? And I wonder... Uh, even today, you know, you fast forward 2,000 years, okay, just thinking about the culture of that city and Greek culture at large, can I ask you, are our own cultural values any different? Or are they kind of, hmm, maybe not so much has changed in 2,000 years? My daughter is in the room, and she's an anthropology student at Concordia, and was really helpful and eye-opening in, in helping me research this message uh, with the ancient world and how things worked back then and so on. Uh, so I, I asked this question as I was preparing. Wow, so study this culture a little bit. Are our values any different? And I would say, not really, would, wouldn't you? I mean, our culture, our Western culture especially, you know, the United States, Canada, Europe, uh, I mean, you know, you zoom in a little bit, Canada, Quebec, you know, Mont greater Montreal, like our culture, we may well be more Corinthian than the Corinthians in some ways. Is, not, is it not true that there is a tremendous pressure put on people to, you, you, if you look a certain way, and if you're physically, you look a certain way, that's where your value lies. Your significance as a person is based on how you look. Wow. And, you know, the whole sexual thing in Corinth, 
I would venture to say it's no stretch of the imagination, it's not an outlandish statement to say that we have created a deity out of sex. It is worshipped in our culture, absolutely worshipped. And this is not healthy, folks. Like, this is, this is Corinth all over again. It's absolutely wild the way that the values around this run today, and we're making it up as we go, folks. Like, and the whole thing with the, the alcohol and the booze in, in, uh, in Corinth, I mean, look at the drugs today. Look at the, the crisis with fentanyl in everything. I mean, this is, a, this is a, a potion of destruction in the culture. In some ways, you could say we might be more Corinthian than the Corinthians. And I, I think especially of young women today. And wow, the pressure that young women are under in our culture. You must look a certain way or you are less significant. Your significance and your value as a person is based on your looks and in many ways, your whole sexual demeanor. This is where we're getting our value from. This is, but this is what we're taught. This is what's pumped into people in pop culture, in media, in the, the movies that you know, play in buildings like these. That's the messaging that's out there over and over and over again. 20th, 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 21st century, uh, you know, still speaking here, did a little bit of digging because of the movie that we played on uh, Friday night over at the Bible College. We ended up with two churches there, like 30 people there. Really interesting time. It was a little beehive of, of young people there. And did a little bit of research as this movie deals with depression, anxiety, and suicide. Very interesting what uh, StatsCan uh, reports there. I think the bottom is chopped off, but it's from a 2023 article. And they researched from you know the past 10 years, 2012 to 2022. And there's increases in anxiety, disorder, and mental illness all across the board. But the, the, the prevalence of mood and anxiety disorders or even larger in certain age groups, and in particular, youth, 15 plus. Much greater prevalence, I've looked at the charts and you can see by age group, whoa, it spikes in the 15 to 24 year old section. And young women, in particular, 15 to 24, were most likely to have met the, the diagnostic criteria for a mood or anxiety disorder. It's no wonder. Look at the values that they have to deal with in the culture. There's a, there's a story from the late 1800s written by a, a French author, Guy de Maupassant. And again, Sarah introduced me to this. I'd never heard of the story. She said, oh, you got to hear this story. I said, well, I never heard of this crazy story. She said, listen to the story, Dad. So listen to this story, a little short story. And it goes like this. You have this, this, uh, this woman who grows up. She's a, she's a beautiful woman, but she's dirt poor. You know, and this is uh, late 1800s in France. And she's poor. this story is a very sarcastic take in some ways on this value system. And so she grows up uh, uh, poor, and uh, she ends up marrying a, a guy who's poor, 
I think he's a clerk or a teacher, I can't remember. And, and they get married, and she longs uh, for something better, you know, as she looks at her shabby walls and her shabby drapes and, the, you know, the clothing and the whole, and she longs for something better. And right away you get attached to, to and you're very sympathetic toward the character. And, you know, you kind of feel like the poor, the poor lady, you know, and, and you feel this sense of you want her to, you want her to succeed, you know, it seems like, it seems like her desires aren't all that bad. And, you know, she just kind of ended up on the bad end of things over there in the, you know, late, uh, uh, late 1800s in France. And, um, and so you, you, you go through the story and her, her husband, lo and behold, gets an invitation to a ball right, and expensive ball, you know, through his work, he had a connection, whatever, and he gets this invitation, and uh, he, he, he says, we should go, and she says, well, I can't go, how am I supposed to go, how are we supposed to go, I have nothing to wear, it's, why you even show me this invitation, we're going to be embarrassed, and so on, and, and so she feels very discouraged by this, and so the man, he has saved up 400 francs, I think it is, to buy himself a gun so he can go hunting next summer with his buddies. And he sacrifices and he takes his 400 francs and he goes and he buys her this beautiful dress. You know, and so he says, here, you can wear this beautiful dress. And so she, he, she gets the dress and she puts the dress on and she's beautiful in the dress, but she says to herself, oh, why'd you do this? You know, I have nothing to wear on my neck. Like, you can't go to a ball this way and, oh, well, you know, why are we going to this? And, you know, I appreciate you bought me this dress, but I have no necklace to wear. And, you know, and she's just so discouraged, right? And so the husband, you know, being the good husband that he is, he says, well, but you have this friend. You've had this friend for a while, and she's very, very wealthy. Why don't you go to your friend's house, and why don't you ask her to borrow one of her necklaces? And maybe she'll lend you a necklace just for the night. And you can, you can have your necklace, you can have your dress, I'll take you to the ball, you're going to have a wonderful time. So lo and behold, she goes to her friend's house, and she, she, her friend says, you know, she opens up the, the big armoire, and she says, you know, what would you like, kind of thing. And she can't find anything, she's fishing around, she can't find anything. Finally, she finds a little box, she opens up the box, and she's a beautiful, beautiful necklace, goes perfect with her, with her dress. And so she says, well, I'd really like to borrow this one. Would this one be okay to borrow? And, and the lady looks at it, looks at her, and she says, sure, you can, you can borrow that necklace, no problem. She doesn't say anything about the necklace. She just says, sure, you can borrow that necklace. So she takes the necklace. They go to the ball. And the woman has the time of her life at this ball. I mean, she's there all night. You know, she's enjoying the beautiful, glamorous room and the food and the wine and all of these things. And here she is. It's like her dream come true just to have this night, you know. And her husband starts getting exhausted. He goes, waits outside in the hallway with four other husbands, you know, <laughs> while their, their wives are having this grand time at this beautiful, ball, you know, late 1800s in, in, in France. And, uh, and so they, they end up, you know, stumbling into their little apartment at the end, of the, the end of the night, and they're both exhausted. They've got to work in the morning and all of this kind of thing. A reality has set in, and then she stops, and she says to her husband, I lost the necklace. Don't know where it is. It's not on my neck. It's gone. 
So her husband, it can't be, it can't be. They go, they retrace, their, they can't find the necklace. The necklace is flat out gone. So they panic. And so what they do is they say, all right, uh, you know, maybe this will buy a little bit of time. Don't, don't tell your friend yet. Don't give her anything back yet. And we'll come up with money to try and replace this necklace. We'll buy a necklace that looks just like it. And, you know, she won't know the difference. And this is their plan. And so they, they, they do their homework and all this. Well, a necklace to replace that necklace, 36,000 francs. 36,000, a lot of money back in that day. And so they say, oh, well, 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 we'll come up with the money. The guy goes and he borrows money. They do everything that they can to scrounge up the money, borrow, borrow, borrow from this person, this person, this person. I'll pay you back, I'll pay you back, I'll pay you back. Get themselves all loaded up in debt. They get the, they get the necklace. She gives the necklace back to the friend, no questions asked. She doesn't notice that it's a different necklace. looks exactly the same. 36,000 franc necklace. And... From there, they take 10 years of their lives to pay back all their creditors who charged exorbitant interest rates. The lady works herself to the bone. Her hands are all ruined. Her face has is, is gotten older. She's you know, bent over. The husband's done everything. He can't work two jobs, three jobs, pay back all this money, $36,000 with interest and all, or francs with interest to all these creditors and they pay them all back. Done. But they're tired, they're old, and they're still poor. And so the woman, one day she's outside and she sees her friend 10 years later walking with a little child and she says, you know what? I'm going to tell her the truth. I'm going to tell her the whole story. It's 10 years later. You know, I'm going to tell her the truth. And she says, remember that necklace? Well, I lost the necklace. She says, well, you didn't lose the necklace. You gave me back the necklace. She said, no, that wasn't the real necklace. I lost it. And so we went and we bought a, a new necklace. It cost us 36,000 francs. It took us 10 years to pay back the amount and so on. And the, the lady stops and she, she pauses and she kind of gasps and she says to, to the poor lady, she says, she says, that necklace was a fake. It was only worth 500 francs. And the story ends, boom, <laughs> right there. But you see, the, the whole thing is an illustration about the values, the twisted sense of values based on these kinds of things, looks and materialism and all this stuff. So here you have this church that starts after 18 months of Paul working hard trying to lay a foundation. He talks about that in the letter, laying a foundation, working so hard to see people come to Christ and so on. 18 months minimum, he faces persecution, you know, all this stuff. He ends up leaving, and now he's writing letters to them because a church has formed there. There, a church has formed. In that crazy place, a church has formed. And I love the first three verses of 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians is actually the second of three letters that Paul wrote to them. We don't have the first one. And you can see that if you read closely. The first letter is a follow-up to a letter that we don't have. In any case, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Paul 
called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Oh, that's the guy who was there in Acts chapter 18 who got beat up in front of Gallio. Seems like Paul's got an accompany, a person accompanying him, and that's the person. He stuck it out with Paul, stayed with Paul somehow, and he too is addressing these people in this church in Corinth. To the church of God in Corinth. It's in Corinth. There's a church in this totally, totally messed up, immoral, ungodly temple to Apollos, Asclepion, three temples to Aphrodite, all kinds of, of uh, who knows how many temple prostitutes and all this, a city of, I mean, terrible, terrible reputation. People make up words and call somebody a Corinthian to make fun of them, and there's a church in Corinth, church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified. That means to be made holy, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. There's a church in Corinth that's in Christ Jesus. They're, they've got to live in that place, but they've got to live their lives a different way. How are they going to do this in such a place? And those called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We skip over this intro. But it is amazing that there's a church there in that place. And I wonder, folks, whether you live in, you know, first century Corinth and you look up at that mountain and you know what's up there. And then you look to your left and there's an Asclepion over there. And then you look to your right and then there's a temple of Apollos over there. And you look to this side and they're, they're doing some weird ceremony with meat and worshiping some weird god. And you wonder whether you're going to eat this food or not. And you're whether you're there or whether you're in the 21st century. And there's all kinds of weird values that seem kind of Corinthian. And you're surrounded by materialism and hypersexuality and, uh, uh, you know, this sort of modern idolatry and materialism. And you're surrounded by all these things. Can you be a Christian in such circumstances? And the most amazing thing about the introduction of this letter is he's not telling them to run away. He's not telling them, get out of there. Get, go run away from Corinth. Go, go, go to some island somewhere and live your holy Christian life with all your holy people and so on. And get out of town. Run, run, run from that place. That place is evil. That place is unholy. That place has got demons. That place is this, that place. No, he says, you're the church in Corinth. You're sanctified, you're in Christ Jesus, and you're in Corinth. Wow, a church is there. And it, it makes us 
uh, it, it, this can be very inspiring to us because, folks, the culture that we live in is not much different. You're not in some, some uh, you know, church culture when you go out into your, into your, your daily lives. You're not, folks. Even if you're in maybe a Christian school or something like that, or you know, you're trying to to stay away and stay separated from all those things, folks. Like it's absolutely everywhere. You may as well be living in Corinth in the first century. Well, they did. They did. Now they needed a lot of help. Paul writes a lot of stuff to them, but he says, "Hey, you're there. You're right there in Corinth." And so grace and peace to you, you can be in Corinth and you can be in Christ Jesus at the same time. And this is what God wants from his people. He does not want you to run and hide. I mean, there may be a time in your life where you say, I can't have any, any friends who aren't Christians right now. I can't, you know, be in this atmosphere. I can't go here. I can't go here. And that's fine. But there's going to come a point where you're going to have to face it. You're going to have to live Christianly in dark places. You're going to have to live out your faith. You're, you are the sermon that the culture around you sees. How are you doing with that sermon? How are you living your life in crazy Corinth of the 21st century? And you're going to see as you read through these letters, man, the issues are not all that different. They're not all that different. People haven't changed all that much in 2,000 years. I mean, they may be in a different place, different place in the world, different time, but the heart is very, very similar. And the things that you will see written in these letters just leap off the page when you understand the background. So I challenge you today, are you living in such a way where you say, I'm in Christ, but I'm in the city. I'm in Christ and I'm in the city. I'm in both. And so I'm learning how to live let my light shine even in those dark places. Would you stand with me? Any musicians who are in the room, you can come up and go ahead and play in the background. I just want to pray for you uh, today. Father, as we, as we open your word and we look into uh, this, this old, old, old letters to an old church, uh, to an old city, uh, we're just so grateful at, at how real uh, this is because we deal with the same things. And Lord, uh, people have come out here this morning, have, have intentionally made the effort to come and to gather with one another and to encourage one another and to worship and to uh, have fellowship. And we know that we need this, oh God. There are people who are watching online and we know that we need this because we live in many respects in this, in a same, the same kind of circumstances, the same kind of city, the same values. And so, Lord, I pray, even as you don't want us to run and to escape from it all, but to stand and to shine, I pray that you would teach us. I pray that you would fill us with your spirit afresh. I think of young people in schools, and this is right where they are at. I think of people in the workforce and marketplaces, whether it's white collar or blue collar or whatever, and Lord, they face 
they face the Corinth of this world and have to make decisions and have to make a stand and have to say what they believe at times and have to shine that light of Jesus. Oh God, would you teach us to do that, that we would be authentic followers of you and that we would uh, show the light of Jesus in this, even in this world. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you today. If you have kids in 11, remember to pick them up. And uh, if you want to talk to Shu Yin about that, uh, that talk that's happening tomorrow at McGill University, she's just over there. God bless you, everyone. Have a great Sunday.